Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Greetings. My name is Galen O'Dell, alongside Leo Manchetti, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. On today's episode, we are joined by Luke Eplin, the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. Luke, welcome to the American Valor Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. To start us off, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Uh, okay, well, I'm from Southern Illinois. I'm from a small town, uh, not unlike the one that Bob Feller grew up in. Um, it is a farming community in the southern part of the state, closer to St. Louis. Um, I went to school at Washington University in St. Louis, and upon graduating, I moved to New York City to work in book publishing, and I've been working there more or less ever since with while writing sort of articles and pieces for magazines and newspapers on the side. What inspired you to become an author? I, when I was a kid, probably in high school, I got into sentences, I think is the, maybe the nerdy way of saying it. Um, I guess like how some people get into comic books or video games. I really love a well-crafted sentence. I can remember reading certain books like John Cheever or Ralph Ellison or something in bed and just kind of tingling whenever a really great sentence would, would hit and so um, I uh, 
yeah, I would, I would sort of read stuff out loud to myself all the time. I was, I was interested in the rhythm of sentences and paragraphs. I started writing things in high school. I never thought about being a journalist or anything like that. I've, I've never been a staff writer or anything along those lines, but I've just always kind of done it. I guess I'm just more, I, I think of it more of, in terms of an art or something like that, that I can do on the side. Yeah. And when you put it that way, you can really appreciate just how fascinating writing can be, especially with sentence and paragraph flow, because they really play an important role in keeping readers engaged. Yeah, I mean, I, for, for this book, Our Team, I was really interested in, in trying to write a baseball book that has perhaps a little bit more of a literary bent to it. Some baseball books, which I really love, you know, are, are loaded with statistics and sort of analyses between sort of certain players of certain eras or certain games or things like that. And I really wanted to focus more on narrative and story and kind of almost making it read like a novel. So it's very, the, the book is very grounded in character. I really focus on four different individuals and it's really trying to sort of recreate the excitement of those years that I'm focused on, mainly the post-war seasons. And so when I was writing, I was very conscious about sort of making sure that the sentences carried the reader along, trying to make it, make it almost like faster. I wanted the book to be a page turner. Yeah, just really, really sort of focusing on narrative. So I, I, it's, it's not very heavy with statistics or anything like that. It's just really trying to hook readers with a novelistic approach. In Faye Vincent's book, The Only Game in Town, Bob Feller stated, quote, there was racial rivalry, not amongst the players, but amongst the fans, end quote. Given this statement, do you think there was more camaraderie and respect among the players, regardless of their race slash ethnicity, compared to the spectators? I'm going to have to say it depends. Bob Feller, when he makes it to the majors, there is a phenomenon known as barnstorming that is in full effect. This has been going on for decades before Feller gets into the league in 1936. And barnstorming was a way for major league players after the season is over to sort of play these exhibition games across the country and reach fans and, and, and people that didn't get a chance to see major league baseball because it was really concentrated in the Northeast and the Midwestern city. So they would go through the South or the West or the Southwest and try to reach fans that way. The baseball was a little looser and they could do things that you couldn't normally do in a major league game. Most notably, they could play against rosters stocked with players from the Negro Leagues. This is, of course, during a time when the color line is in effect in baseball and you have the Negro Leagues and the, the major leagues together. And they don't play during the regular season, but they compete against each other in these barnstorming contests. And so Feller had sort of no problem with sharing the field with these players competing against them and things like that. And maybe Feller is speaking from his own experience there where the racial rivalry wasn't as salient among certain white players that were more interested in perhaps garnering paychecks, supplementing their incomes, things like this. But for black players, I think the racial rivalry was paramount because, I mean, these are players that were being told by 
sort of the white press and even white baseball players, that they weren't good enough to make it into the major leagues. This was kind of a, a thought that was going on among sort of white executives and sports writers and things like that. They, they recognized that black players were talented. They recognized that black players had certain skill sets, but they didn't believe that they had sort of the complete package to thrive in the major leagues or that the pressure would get to them and they'd wilt under the the, the the pressure of Major League Baseball. A lot of white fans and players saw black players more as entertainers or performers than actual players. And so these barnstorming tours allowed these black players not only to show that they could hang with Major League players, but that they could beat them. And it happened quite often. Feller pitched against a pitcher named Satchel Page, who was one of the greatest Negro League pitchers of that time. And Page routinely beat Bob Feller. And this was hugely important to these players to sort of demonstrate that and to show their fans as well that this is how it was. And so maybe for Feller, the racial rivalry wasn't as salient and he, he sensed it more in the fans. But from the Black experience, I think that the racial rivalry was extremely important. Getting back to your point on some members of the white media, along with some white players, making claims that African-American players won't be able to cut it in the big leagues. Bob Feller happens to be one of those players. In Chapter 13 of the book, after Feller pitched two innings in a barnstorming game, he was asked in the clubhouse by a sports writer named Steve George if he thought Satchel Paige and his teammates would be able to make it in the big leagues. Feller responded by saying, Quote, haven't seen one, not one. Maybe Page when he was young. When you name him, you're done. Some are good hitters. Some can field pretty good. Most of them are fast. But I've seen none who combine the qualities of a big league ball player. Not even Jackie Robinson. End quote. News of Feller's questionable comments sent shockwaves throughout baseball and the media. And undoubtedly so, because... Negro League players like Satchel and Jackie were, in fact, Major League caliber players. And Feller, of all people, should realize this because he played against Satchel Page in the barnstorming games he organized. Now, despite these comments, in no way was Bob Feller a racist. And at the same time, these comments are a reflection of how Bob was never afraid to share what was on his mind, regardless of whether or not what he said would make people confused and or angry. In no way are we trying to vilify Bob Filler here, but Luke, just as you and I were talking earlier, it's important for people to learn and understand both sides of who Bob Feller was as a person. Yeah, I think Bob Feller is a very complex person. And I think just calling him a racist would really simplify him. He, I don't believe he, he was. He comes from, as you know, a small town in, uh, in Iowa, his farming community, Van Meter. His dad senses this extraordinary ability in Bob Feller 
from a very early age. And so he sort of clears a part of his pasture, builds a baseball field on their farmland. And that's where Bob Feller really sort of gets to develop his talent. It's almost like an incubator to sort of help him excel. And through happenstance, Feller makes it onto the Cleveland Indians at age 17 when he's only a high school junior. And in his very first major league start, he ties the American League record in strikeouts. Four starts later, he ties the major league record in strikeouts. He is just a phenom. I think that we've never had a better origin story in Major League Baseball than Bob Feller's. It's like the American dream writ large, just sort of a, you know, a country boy going from the farmlands to the majors and just kind of striking everybody out. It was, it was such a phenomenon that whenever Bob Feller graduated high school the next year, uh, his high school graduation ceremony was, was broadcast live on the radio from coast to coast. He was extraordinary. And he immediately kind of starts excelling. He has a few bumps in his early seasons, but then by the time he's 22, he has 100 wins and over 1,000 strikeouts. I mean, there's sort of no telling what his ceiling could be. And so Feller himself sort of internalizes this sort of American dream story, this sort of idea that through hard work and through sort of diligence that his father practiced and that he practiced through sort of chores and really honing your craft and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, you could really make it to the top of your life. And that is a story that is as old as this country is. And it is a story that is intertwined with Feller's own narrative, a narrative of which Feller himself loved to repeat throughout his entire life. Feller wrote many autobiographies. Feller told his story often. It was really central to his character. So whenever he gets the sort of, whenever he's talking about players from the Negro Leagues, he's kind of looking at it through that lens. And if you look at the statements that he made about Black players, not only about Jackie Robinson, but he said similar things about Satchel Page at one point. He also, after the 1946 barnstorming tour, when asked if any Negro League players could make it in the majors, said no, not one. You have to really sort of look at it through the lens of his own narrative. He is thinking of, uh, kind of through that that prism of, well, I pulled myself up. I made myself into this great pitcher. And the fact that like these players aren't sort of breaking through those barriers and pulling themselves up must indicate that there is some sort of either deficiency about them. In Jackie Robinson's case, he said, oh, he's a football player. He, he can't hit the, the fastball. I mean, the, the inside fastball, they'll be striking him out all the time. He thought Page, Satchel Page, hadn't worked as much on diversifying his pitching arsenal. These sorts of things. He's not saying, Bob Feller is not saying, I don't want Black players in the league. I don't want to compete against them. He's saying they haven't put in the work yet, the work that you know someone like me had done to make myself into this league. So he's looking at it through a very individual lens, and he's not seeing the sort of systemic barriers and prejudices that are barring the Black players from having a similar narrative as his. So again, as I said, if you look at it all one way or all the other way with Feller, you're going to have a very simplified narrative. You have to sort of look at the complexity and place Feller within his time. You touched on Satchel Page earlier. Through your research, what did you discover about Bob's relationship with both Satchel Page and Larry Doby? Bob Feller and Satchel Page were intertwined from the very start. As I said, Bob Feller burst out of the cornfields and had this sort of like miraculous breakthrough into Major League Baseball in 1936 as a 17 year old. He comes back to Iowa as a hero. 
they have this tremendous welcoming party for him as a 17-year-old. Even the Iowa governor comes down and gives a speech about this boy that made the majors. And then a day later, Satchel Paige is barnstorming across Iowa, and a very smart promoter says, you know what would sell a lot of tickets? If we put that young kid from Iowa against Satchel Paige. And so from the very start, these two men are intertwined, and it's, you know, they're they attract crowds, and they are the best white and the best black pitchers of their time. But they're also two of the most entrepreneurial-minded athletes that have ever played in American sports. I mean, Bob Feller, from the start, is sort of recognizes the sort of potency of his own narrative. He recognizes that he can make a ton of money off of it. He hires an agent as soon as he gets back into Iowa, and he sort of becomes this person who is really thinking about ways to capitalize on his fame, on his narrative, on his accomplishments. He is expert at doing this throughout his entire career and after his career. He sort of makes his living being Bob Feller. Satchel Paige um, is, is very similar to that. He came from the Deep South during a time of extreme Jim Crow laws, during a time of massive segregation. And he builds himself up into basically a one-man franchise. By the time 1936 comes around, when he first faces Feller, Satchel Paige is the preeminent barnstormer of any race across the country. He, somebody who would sort of hire out his services to whatever club would pay him the most money and a percentage at the gate. During a time in the Depression, whenever a lot of the Negro Leagues were in dire financial strait, Satchel Paige is making as much as any major league superstar. He is tremendous in his ability to sort of, you know, make money for himself, be his own PR department, do things like this. And so Paige and Feller see kind of a kinship or a brotherhood in their own sort of entrepreneurial ways. And they form this tremendous economic uh, relationship. I'd say that the relationship between them is first and foremost, a business partnership. They sort of recognize that if they sort of can play each other across the country in these barnstorming games where you have the best white pitcher and the best black pitcher, you're going to draw tons and tons of fans, which means they get a higher percentage of the gate, which means more money for them. And so it is a rivalry on the mound. They always wanted to, to beat each other, but it's also a partnership that lines both of their pockets equally. And so I think that they were friendly with each other. They had respect for each other, but they were just so savvy and recognizing all that in, in one another. With Larry Doby, it's a little different. Larry Doby came to the Indians in 1947. Unlike Jackie Robinson, who was the first black player in Major League Baseball, Larry Doby is the second. He does not have any minor league experience. He goes right from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. He comes at a time when Bob Feller is sort of enmeshed in planning the 1947 barnstorming tour. Bob Feller is a little bit injured. He's had a terrible injury that he suffers in June of 1947 that sort of hampers him the rest of the season. He's engaged in sort of battles over how long he can barnstorm with the commissioner. So he is really busy. And Dobie kind of says that Feller was off in his own world at that point. And you also have to understand that he's, you know, possibly the biggest superstar, you know, definitely the biggest pitcher in Major League Baseball. And so he's just in this stratosphere that Doby, a rookie, someone who hasn't proved himself yet, wasn't able to penetrate then. So I think that they were friendly as teammates, but I wouldn't necessarily say they were particularly close. Do you consider Bob Feller to be a forerunner of integrating baseball? Because despite some of the claims he made, that may have rubbed people the wrong way. 
he was in support of integration. I think that you can look at these barnstorming tours that Bob Feller put together, particularly the ones in 1946 and 1947, and see them as crucial to the integration process. Um, in 1946, Bob Feller has just come back from World War II the year before. He's lost sort of four years, not only of pitching, but of salary. And so he kind of is thinking to himself, I have a limited window to make as much money as I can through my sport. And he has decided that he wants to do this barnstorming tour, basically to end all barnstorming tours. It's going to be this cross-country affair with airplanes and big stadiums and him and Satchel Paige head to head every day. And he doesn't hire any agents or any promoters. He does it all himself. It's this tremendous business sense that he has that allows him to pull this off. And he wants the best black players that he can find so that it's a real racial rivalry with the best white players versus the best black players. So if you look at someone like Buck O'Neill, who is the great Negro League ambassador, he was a first baseman for the Kansas City Monarchs. And his uh, autobiography, he talks about how important that tour was for integration, because if they couldn't be as lucky as Jackie Robinson in getting signed by the Dodgers. They could at least sort of show, you know, a much larger public than they would have been exposed to otherwise. They could show their talents. They could show how good they were against, you know, supposedly the best white players of the time. Especially Satchel Paige, Buck O'Neill says that it was that tour where Paige really, you know, uh, matched Bob Feller. It was that tour that really gave the Indians the confidence than to sign Satchel Paige, who was much older at that time. He was in his 40s. And uh, some people were questioned whether he still had the stuff and the stamina to make it in the majors. And that tour really kind of answered those doubts. And so the Black players at the time really recognized that the barnstorming that Feller did and the fact that he laid it all out on the line, as he did, was super important to exposing these players to executives and fans who otherwise wouldn't have seen them. And so later in his life, whenever they would have reunions of Negro League players, Bob Feller was often invited to these reunions as, you know, kind of recognition of his importance. Yeah, so not only was he a forerunner of integration, but he also, along with Satchel Paige, really set the tone for how all athletes should market themselves and make money off the field. He was. I think that you can sort of look at somebody. I mean, I think that you can look at the way that athletes now create personal brands, um, sort of diversify themselves, things like this. And you can trace that line directly back to Satchel Paige and Bob Feller. They were some of the forerunners in doing this. Bob Feller was the very first professional athlete in this country ever to incorporate himself. He turned himself into a business. He said he did this so that if during one of his barnstorming tours, if like a plane crashed or if somebody got injured, he couldn't be sued for this. It would, the, the corporation would take care of it. But he also did it, you know, to diversify. He did radio shows. You know, he wrote books. He wrote a newspaper column. He endorsed tons and tons of products. I mean, Everything that you now think about what these superstars do can be traced back to these two men. Along with Bob Feller, Satchel Paige, and Larry Doby, in what way did Bill Veck contribute to the civil rights movement? Bill Veck buys the Indians in 1946, the Cleveland Indians. 
they're a team that is not doing so hot. They end up finishing in sixth place in, in 1946. And Vex sort of recognizes that he needs to bring in an influx of talent soon if he's going to make them a competitive team against sort of powerhouses like the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. At that time, the reserve clause in baseball was was in effect, which made it so that there was no free agency. So it was hard to sort of, you know, get players on the market like that. And uh, you had to sort of scout them and develop them or trade for them. But Beck was limited in the trades that he could do. He did pull off a couple of really good ones. And of course, you know, scouting and developing players takes a lot of time. So Vex sort of recognized that if he wanted to get better and to bring the Indians to the top, the surefire way to do that was to integrate, to take players from the Negro Leagues, sign them from the Negro Leagues and do that before his competitors were doing so. And so really what he does with the Indians by signing Dobie and Page, he takes a sixth place team in 1946 and he turns them into a World Series champion less than two years later. It's an extraordinary turnaround. And really he's able to do that because they integrate. Larry Doby has a tremendous season in 1948, comes out of nowhere, bats over 300, really leads the charge for the Indians. Satchel Page gets signed at mid-season, wins six games for the Indians during a time, during a sort of time when the Indians were slipping a little bit there in the mid-season. He really kind of keeps them above water in the pennant race. Without that, they would not have won. And then whenever the Indians win the World Series in 1948, it's really through Doby's heroics. He hits a game-winning home run in game four. He leads the Indians in batting average. And so really what the Indians are showing the country is the sort of benefits that happen whenever you integrate your workforce. It is something that is not lost on certain major league owners who saw a lot of people thought that Jackie Robinson was exceptional because he was just this tremendous athlete, whether in football or track or baseball. But then you, you, you know, so some major league owners were like, yeah, but Jackie Robinson is an exception. But then you sign someone like Larry Doby, who people didn't even know about. They, they had no idea who Larry Doby was. And he really helped the Indians contend. It, it really spurred a lot of major league owners to then be like, you know what, we've got to start signing black players or we're just not going to be in the competition. Or at least that was the thought. It then happened much slower than that. But what it showed the country was really the benefits that could happen from integration. And it showed like when Doby hits the game-winning home run in, in game four, a white pitcher named Steve Gromack rushes into the clubhouse and hugs him. And that picture went across the country and it showed a white man and a black man in this sort of spontaneous show of affection for each other. And it really, a picture like that was, was exceedingly rare in 1948, years before the Brown versus Board of Education ruling that would desegregate the schools. I mean, it was a, it was a precursor to what you were going to see and a lesson that the country could take to heart. It's clear that Bill Vecht really helped him improve the Indians' player personnel, but how did his personality help make attending Indians game a more memorable experience? Well, just like Bob Feller and Satchel Paige were sort of forerunners to the athlete as brand, the athlete as businessman that we now see, Bill Vecht was somebody who completely re like reimagined what it would be like to go to a stadium. So now whenever you go to a baseball game, you see sort of fireworks being shot off, you see t-shirt cannons, you see sort of things going on on the scoreboard, you see mascots and all these other sorts of things. It's just kind of like all that is sort of in the package of going to a game. Well, that wasn't the case back in the 40s. Baseball was a much more sort of staid 
thing. It was like people, there was this idea that you're there to just to see the game. Vex thought of baseball more as like a theatrical experience where it had room for competitive play on the field. He wanted the Indians to be great, but it also had room for diverting sideshows. So you could sort of shoot off fireworks or have bands go through, you know, come through, or you could have circus performers like do stunts and stuff like that before games and between innings. He wanted the fans to be entertained, even if their team was losing. He wanted the fans to go home thinking, well, at least we were entertained by that. And so at the time that was pretty radical, but it was really latched onto by the fans. Like people responded to that tremendously. A lot of people were like, we're going to Indians games just to see what happens. Like, what's he going to do now? And Vic himself, he never wore a tie. He didn't wear a suit. He didn't wear a hat. He looked like a common person and he acted like that. He did not want to watch the games from an owner's box. He was often in the bleachers, hanging out with fans, sort of talking to them, figuring out, you know, what more can I do to, to make you comfortable or to entertain you? He was somebody that was just sort of out and about and people really responded to him. He shattered the attendance record in 1948 in Cleveland, a town that was, you know, a sixth the size of New York City. But, I mean, he set off a frenzy. Yeah, you can definitely consider that as a thinking outside the box idea because with Bill Vec, he made the experience of going to an Indians game more engaging to not just the diehard baseball fans, but to a wider variety of fans, whether it be casual fans or spectators who really don't follow baseball a whole lot. And that certainly was the driving force behind the record-breaking attendance numbers at Indians games. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he, he said exactly that. Beck would say that if you cater only to baseball fans, you're going to hit a ceiling in terms of the attendance that you can get because there's only so many of them. But if you sort of like cater to women by you know, uh, doing ladies day promotions or, you know, cleaning up the ballpark or something like that. And he catered to children by having these sort of circus acts or even a nursery. He installed a nursery in the stadium in 1948 so that if a kid got bored, they could just go and play there. He was really catering to all, you know, sexes, genders, ages, whatever. And even races like he, you know, he would go into African-American communities in, in Cleveland and give speeches and get them out to the ballpark. He just, wanted people to come. And so, yeah, and he sort of figured that if you, even if you didn't know anything about baseball, if you were entertained by what was going on and then sort of also watch the game, you might become a baseball fan. So he was minting new fans, basically. It seems like the one common theme between Bob Feller, Satchel Page, and Bill Vec is that they're all just so ahead of their time. Yeah, they're all visionaries in a lot of ways. They're visionaries. They also are people who are extremely good about, extremely good with the press, extremely good with sort of talking about their narrative, extremely good with getting their publicity and point of view out there. I don't think it's any coincidence that Bob Feller, Bill Beck, and Satchel Page are three men who each wrote more than one autobiography in their lifetime. They're sort of constantly sort of telling their story. They're great at sort of mythologizing what they do. I mean, there's a real skill to that. And yeah, they, they use it to their, to their advantage, both economic advantage and, you know, just kind of getting what they want. They're visionaries. Larry Doby is much different than that. 
He's the fourth character in my book. Larry Doby is a very shy, introverted individual. He never writes his autobiography uh, in his lifetime, which is a real shame. And he is somebody that really doesn't like to talk to the press. He's quiet, he's withdrawn, but he's also a man of extreme character. I mean, he, he was, he's a very, uh, he really stood up to a lot of the sort of pressures and abuses that he had to face and he, and he weathered them with, with just great admirableness. While we know how Feller served in the Navy during World War II, what can you tell us about Vec and Doby's service? So Vec's service, he, like Feller, did not necessarily have to enlist whenever he did. Bill Vec was the owner of a team called the Milwaukee Brewers. This is not the major league team. This was a minor league team at the time. He was a sensation in Milwaukee, just as he was later in Cleveland. But whenever they started drafting fathers and other individuals like that, Vec decided that he was somebody of, I think he was like 30, and he had a couple of kids, but he decided, you know what, I have to do this for my country. And so he uh, enlisted. They tried to put him into a promotional capacity. Um, you know, somebody went around the country, sold, sold war bonds, sort of promoted people to enlist, things like this. But Vec would have nothing of that. He wanted to fight. He became a Marine. And he got sent to an island in the South Pacific. And unfortunately, his time there was a little short. I think his five, about five months into his service, he was loading uh, heavy shells into an artillery gun and one of the shells backfired right onto his foot and it crushed it. And he was kind of sent into military hospitals for years after that. He resisted amputation. He really did not want to lose his leg, but that's what ended up happening. So it was a war wound that really sort of shaped the rest of his life. He carried it, he carried it with him. Larry Doby's story is a lot more interesting in terms of just what he learned in the military. Larry Doby grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, or at least he went to high school there. He was an athletic sensation. He went to an integrated high school. He played on integrated teams, and he was the captain of his football team, his basketball team. He was just this athlete that was so good that whenever he graduated, his high school threw this big ceremony for him in Patterson where they gave him a gold watch and they sort of sung his praises. It was something they'd never done for anybody, but he was just such a phenomenal athlete. And so because of that, Dobie sort of claimed that he didn't really experience the sort of rigid segregation that defined a lot of the Black experience during the time that he was growing up. He really you know, he certainly got a lot of abuse when he was playing in high school, but the sort of acceptance he got from being such an athletic star blunted that. When he joins the military, he gets on a train in Newark, New Jersey, which is close to where he's from. And there are white and black troops on this train, recruits. They're going to Chicago to the Great Lakes Naval Station. And Dobie is thinking to himself, he, he recognizes some of these people and he thinks, you know, we're all going to the same place. We're all fighting for the same thing. We're fighting for the same country. We're going to be in this together. That's his thought process. He was a little naive. And when he gets off the train in Chicago, the military quickly separates the white troops from the black troops. And as he's watching the white troops go to a separate part of the camp, it's like segregation hits him like it's never hit him before. He says that he just he had no idea that was coming and it just deeply wounded him. And I think for the first few months he was in the Navy, he kind of, you know, is in his shell. It's like he's, he's shell-shocked by the fact that the country he's, he's fighting for is treating him like a second-class citizen. 
So what he learns in the Navy is something that, you know, he'll also have to learn when he segregates the American League, just the sort of abuses that he's going to have to go through. He does become a physical fitness instructor in the Navy. He's sent to the South Pacific. Luckily, he does not see uh, any heavy combat or anything. He's on an island called Mogmog, where he leads naval troops that are on rest through various physical activities. So, um, yeah, it's... It's a very different experience than the one that Beckenfeller has. Yeah, and talking about two sides of the Navy, hence the reason why one of the chapters in your book is called Two Sides of the Navy. And this came to me as a surprise when I was reading that chapter, that back then, of all the branches, the Navy was the strictest when it came to segregation. And it was just completely unreal how with Larry Doby when he first arrived to Great Lakes, it was a much, much different experience than Bob Feller, where at the beginning when he first enlisted following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Navy saw him as a tremendous recruiting magnet. Whereas with Larry Doby, segregation really took its toll on him in boot camp. Yeah, they're very interesting men to contrast there because, as you said, Bob Feller's entrance into the Navy, it's nationwide news. Bob Feller was going to Chicago on the day that Pearl Harbor happened. He hears about it and he thinks he's going to Chicago to sign or sort of negotiate with Indians management about his contract for the next season. But as soon as he hears about Pearl Harbor on the radio, he decides that he needs to enlist right away. And he doesn't have to. He's the sole provider for his family because his father is very ill with a, with a disease that will soon kill him. And so he was the first professional athlete after Pearl Harbor to enlist. And it's, it really sets this great example for the rest of the, the country. And the Navy certainly uses him as much as it can to encourage people to, to enlist and things like that. In fact, they try to keep Feller stateside so he can do promotional things. And Feller, does, like Vec, does not want to do that. Feller enlists so that he can fight. So he very admirably gets onto a battleship. But yeah, as, as you said, like it, it really couldn't be more opposite than the sort of harsh reality that Doby faces once he joins the Navy. To wrap up, a question we often ask guests on our podcast involves the word valor. When you consider the individual journeys of all four men in the book, what does the word valor mean to you? Well, I can't say that I've had a lot of personal experience in my own life with valor, or at least nothing that rises to the level that uh, a lot of military individuals experience or a lot of people in my book experience. So I think that you can look at all four of these people in my book and see valor from very you know, distinct and different angles. I think what we just talked about with Bob Feller where he is somebody who resists this idea of just being a celebrity and sort of coasting through his military service and gets sent out into some of the most intense battles in the South Pacific you can imagine. I mean, in many ways, he's lucky to have survived. There were bombs dropping on his battleship at various points throughout his service. And the valor that he exhibited there and the valor that then he would talk about for the rest of his life. I mean, he, he valued that service so much is really admirable. And I think you can look at sort of Bill Veck and the way that he, at a time whenever 
you know, it would have been just sort of easiest to go with the flow in Major League Baseball. He was really cutting against the grain in so many different ways, not only in terms of how he was reinventing the stadium experience, but just the fact that he integrated the Indians and did it the way that he did. He got a lot of blowback for signing Satchel Page, but he also had enough sort of integrity to realize that he needed to compensate owners of the Negro Leagues clubs whenever he signed their players, because these were owners that had found players like Larry Doby, had developed them, and they deserve some form of compensation. So Vec himself was thinking along these lines, and really, I mean, it, it took tremendous courage for him to do that. And then, of course, you've got Doby and Page, and their valor is something that I can't even fathom for myself. I mean, just having to go into a league that at times was hostile to them, you know, doing sort of undergoing all the sort of racial slurs and abuses and things like that, and being segregated so often from your teammates and just being able not only to, you know, perform on the field like you're expected to, but to keep your cool and to, you know, be able to endure this abuse. I mean, it, that's the sort of valor I, I can't even, I can't even fathom. It's, it's, it's tremendous. And yeah, all four of these individuals exhibit it. Yeah. And despite Satchel Page not serving in the military, he certainly contributed, I believe by raising money for war bonds during his baseball games. And speaking of Valor, he certainly had not only a rough journey, but a very unique journey as opposed to Bob Feller to the big leagues. Yeah. Page in fact did do all that stuff that you said. Um, he was much older by the time the war came along. And so I think that he wasn't drafted right away, but from the very start, he would often hook up with Dizzy Dean, another great white player. And they would sort of go around and play in these exhibition games that drew tens of thousands of people and, you know, raise tons of money for war bonds. He certainly was instrumental in doing things like this. And I mean, Page had such a long and windy and often lonely road. Like a lot of times he's just kind of going into certain towns and places like that on his own, joining a team for a day, kind of throwing for there and then having to leave. He didn't always know whether there would be accommodations in these towns. He had to sort of navigate the sort of, you know, segregated spaces of the United States during the Great Depression. I mean, for him to sort of endure as he did and still make it to the major leagues at age 42, I think is one of the most extraordinary athletic stories that you could ever get in this country. Well, Luke, thank you very much for coming on to the American Valor podcast. It was great to meet you and speak with you today, as well as learn more about a very, very fascinating book that everybody should get their hands on. Great. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you. To our listeners, this conversation with Luke Eplin concludes this episode of the American Valor podcast. This conversation was brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the United States Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Indians. Please leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevalorward.org.
There, you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast, and more. For Leo Menchetti and everyone here at the American Valor podcast, I'm Galen O'Dell. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.